Good to see everyone today. Uh, let's play a quick game of yay or nay. Um, you've just handed in your last assignment and you're relieved and you're looking forward to the next few weeks. Yay or nay? Yay! Oh wow, there actually are a few people. <laughs> there you go. Who here feels a little bit under the weather and it's week 11 and there's a lot to do and we're doing Ecclesiastes and you're feeling a little bit pessimistic and yay or nay? Yay. Good on you for making it here today. I do get a sense that week 11 this year is a little bit busier than it normally is. And I don't know if that's particularly just the people I've talked to, um, but either way, it's a great thing if you come here to hear the Word of God. And it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. Uh, we love to actually explain the Bible and to wrestle together what it's all about. Um, we've got to go through Ecclesiastes 9 and a little bit of 11 today. And I might just get my clicker, if that's all right. Thomas Watson was a pioneer in the field of computer hardware. Uh, he took over a company called CTR, and in four years, he doubled the company's revenue. In 1924, he renamed CTR to International Business Machines, or IBM for short. IBM was so dominant that in 1952, it owned at least 90% of all tabulating machines at the time. Thomas Watson was a pioneer, but he was not a prophet. This is what he said in 1943. I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Not quite right there, Thomas Watson. This man you would know, Bill Gates. He made his fortune by predicting the rise of personal computers in the 1980s, but not all his predictions came true. In 2004, he said this. Two years from now, spam will be solved. It might just be that I have Apple computers. Maybe I should switch to Microsoft. Maybe that's my problem. Or Linux, for those who are of that variety. It's been calculated that two-thirds of forecasts made by American social scientists between 1945 and 1980 have proven to be false. That's an exam mark of 33%. How would you feel if you got 33% for your latest assessment? My nephews like to play chess. It's a game of skill. One thing leads to the next, cause and effect. My nieces like to play snakes and ladders. Pure chance, chaos, and a better chance that they'll win. We like to think that life is like a game of chess. The smartest, are the smartest ones are the ones who will make it. The hardest working are the ones who will be rewarded. But sometimes, life is like snakes and ladders. I know people who have put all the time and effort into planning their wedding day. There's a plan A, there's a plan B, there's a plan C. But then on the day it rains, and none of the sound equipment works. I put so much time and effort into preparing for the day I proposed to Mathia. But nothing could have prepared me for the fact that I missed my exit, got lost, and had to make up the whole thing on the fly. <laughs> that is, in Ecclesiastes, things aren't predictable. Life isn't predictable. Verse 1 of chapter 9, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both 
are before him. That is, the righteous and the wise, they might do everything right, but the final outcome is in the hands of God. Whether it's love, whether it's hate, they don't know what will come from their actions. Or if you jump to verse 11 of chapter 9. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. It's not the fastest, it's not the strongest, and it's not the smartest that will succeed. What here is the determining factor? It's time and chance. It's like fish caught in a net. You can swim harder, you can swim in different directions, but it makes no difference. We're caught in a world that we can't control. And so how do we live in a world of time and chance? What if I told you that no matter how hard you studied, whether you pass or fail, would depend on the flip of a coin? Oh, for some of you that sounds like the sweetest sound of music right now to your ears. <laughs> but what would that do to your motivation to study? How do we live in a world where it feels sometimes like it's more snakes and ladders than chess? Well, in this random world, there is one certainty in chapter 9. If you look at it, death is the only certainty. Verse 2, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. That is, everyone has the death sentence hanging over them. Mother Teresa, she died. Adolf Hitler, he died. My parents' neighbour, who's a builder and is the loveliest guy in the world and used to do stuff for us for free around the house, he'll die. My in-law's neighbour, who's a builder, but is not the best neighbour and has taken the neighbourhood street as his personal car park for his trucks, he'll die. That is, it doesn't matter how you live. Death will win. And in verse 3, this is evil. Young people dying, that's wrong. How is it that good and evil will face the same fate? That's an injustice. But there's another certainty. It's not only that everyone will die. Verse 3, it's also that we're all evil. And so not only is the destination the grave, but our journey there will be full of wickedness. And so death awaits, but waiting for death, it's evil and it's madness all our days. So what should be our response? 
the atheist looks at the injustice and goes, oh, there's no God. How can a just God let all these things happen? But atheism brings with itself a whole host of other issues. So injustice, well, how does the atheist determine justice? If you say there's no God and we're nothing but matter, how do we go from we're all matter and what we do are just choices we make to what we do has moral value of right and wrong? That is, who determines that morality? Why is murder wrong? There's no inherent dignity in humanity, we're just matter. And so it ends up being intuitive. Murder feels wrong. Or if it's not intuitive, it's utilitarian. Whatever brings the happiest outcome to the greatest number of people. And so murder brings grief and sadness. And so it's evil. But then why is happiness the determining factor? There's atheists in history that have acted with the criteria of racial superiority. Why happiness? Racism? Well, that, that feels unjust, but why? And why is happiness for most the outcome? Why not happiness for some at the expense of the many? That is, if we're matter, and, and there's nothing more inherent in humanity, why is it that everyone needs to share in happiness somehow? And so even the criteria that we come up with at the end of the day is just intuitive. And so the atheist can't explain our moral intuition for justice. But not only is it inconsistent, I think at the end of the day, it's just a really proud worldview. How is it that we can go that I have seen everything in the world and there is no God because this God does not satisfy my requirements? The preacher, on the other hand, he doesn't say there's no God. He says live within the world God has given you. And so verse 4, he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Is that sense that I'll rather be Simba than a hyena. But a living dog is better than a dead lion. That is, would you rather be the head of IBM and one of the richest people in the world, but dead? Or yourself right now and alive? Verse 6, the dead, they have no emotions. They can't share in life. They're dead. But the living have hope. They know they will die. And so they can live in light of death. And so rather than rage against God, the preacher says, live humbly in the world that God has given us. But not only are we to live, we're to live well. Uh, you don't expect verse 7 in the Bible. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, till God has already approved of what you do. In Ecclesiastes, good things are a gift, not for gain. Don't find significance in them, but enjoy them. Verse 8, it's not sackcloth, it's white clothes. It's dressing up for the science ball. It's a wedding reception. Uh, over the summer break, Mathia and I were given a voucher to go to the boathouse in Canberra. Who here has heard of the boathouse? There's a few. Uh, if the only restaurant you've been to is Macca's, 
then imagine that only a thousand times better. It's a how to do restaurant. And so we dressed up. We had a three course meal overlooking the lake. I took pictures and my family are probably still to this day quite jealous. We were on holidays and do you think we sat there feeling guilty for the food and wondering what God would think and no, we enjoyed. We gave thanks for the good things that he gave us. Don't live for those moments. Verse 9, this life is still vanity. But enjoy the good things while you can. It's interesting that in 1 Timothy 4, when we get to the New Testament, false teaching is linked with the denial of God as creator. So I've got it up here on the screen, but 1 Timothy 4 says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of lies whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That is, if there's a religion that insists you refrain from marriage, or that requires you to not eat certain foods, you probably know that something's wrong. It's probably a man-made religion, and not God-made. Because if God is the creator, then his creation is a good thing to be enjoyed. If we acknowledge it's from him, and we give thanks to God for those things. So back to Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're going to skip chapter 10, and we're going to go to chapter 11 for the sake of time. Uh, chapter 10 picks up some of the themes of wisdom we looked at last week. Wisdom is better than folly, but because humans are evil, folly always wins. We can't escape it. And so instead of being paralyzed, chapter 11 is all about taking risks. And so verses 1 to 2 of chapter 11. Now when you first read it, it sounds strange. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Uh, I have this image of feeding ducks at Lake Burley Griffin. And when I cast my bread upon the waters, it dissolves and it sinks. <laughs> And so have a go, look at the passage yourself, and look at it with the uh, surrounding verses. And in light of verses 1 to 4, what do you think the preacher is saying here? What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? Okay, you've got three minutes, and we'll come back together. Alright, that's about three minutes. Love to hear from you. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? For after many days you'll Yeah, Chatty.
Any other final responses? Just give it a go. Yeah, Jeremy. We were discussing about um, how another translation talked about it being like, send out ships to collect grain. Yep. Um, and so I think that there's a, I think the meaning behind it is like diversify. Give, um, when, you, when you're trying to, you know, earn your money or, um, you know, give it, have a go at something, try lots of different ways of doing it, keep your options open. Yeah, the economist is cheering right now. Diversify your portfolio. <laughs> it's actually hard to know the exact imagery here. So it could be that. It could be trade. Send out your goods on boats and over time you're going to get a return. And so if that's the case, verse 2, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Or it could be give and be generous. And so verse 2, you don't know when you might be in need and your generosity needs to be paid back. Could be either, but either way, it's saying give it a go. And it lines up with the following verses. Verse 3, you can't control creation. If a cloud is full of rain, you can't ask it to wait 30 minutes so you can put the clothes in. If a tree falls to the north or the south, well, you can't change that either. There it will lie. And so verse 4, if you wait for the right time, well, it may never come. If you spend all your time analysing and not doing, you'll never do. You can't live life being afraid of failing. And you can't live building walls so that you can control all the variables. And so verse 6, put yourself out there. Give it a go. You don't know what will happen. So doing something is better than doing nothing. Now there are some in the room who are a bit too good at trying things. And so maybe you need to be told, just settle down and focus. You probably don't need to be part of 10 clubs in society. But there are some where trying things feels risky. So when you get your results back and you get a credit, how do you react? Some of you are over the moon. It's the gracious gift of God. Some of you don't care. But there are some who will feel disappointed. So one of my friends averaged an HD throughout her degree and when the fourth year of her degree was difficult, she couldn't actually aim lower for a credit. That is, life was about aiming high and doing well. And if that wasn't possible, it was actually not doing it at all. And so she ended up stopping studying in that year of her degree. Ecclesiastes 11 isn't saying aim for a credit. But sometimes, being high achieving can mean we want to control life so that everything goes well. And that can be a really hard thing because life doesn't let us do that. And so we struggle with the ambiguity and the difficulties that life throws at us. Ecclesiastes is a frightful encouragement. Cast your bread upon the waters. You don't know what will come back. Sometimes we'll fail. Sometimes we'll do okay and it will feel disappointing. Sometimes it's an amazing success. But this is an encouragement to, to live being content with the ambiguity and to take a risk.
But as we live life in a world of time and chance, we're encouraged to remember God's judgment. 11 verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. It's not a godless hedonism here. God will bring us to account. Part of the difficulty with reading Ecclesiastes is that it's life under the sun. It's life as everyone sees it, without the eternal stepping in. It's almost this bottom-up approach of living. And so whether you follow Jesus or not, it applies to you, because we're all in this world together. But the difficulty is that, at the same time, we're actually not in the world of Ecclesiastes. God has stepped in. Death isn't the end. Jesus was raised from the dead. The follower of Jesus will also be raised from the dead. Life has meaning. And so we have a top-down approach to living. And so what we have to do is work out how do we take the lessons of Ecclesiastes into a time when we know what happens after death. And so with that in mind, turn to James chapter 4 if you have the Bible with you. And if you don't, it's just going to come up here on the screen. But if you do have a Bible, flip to James chapter 4 towards the end of your Bibles. James chapter 4 from verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We've seen God in Jesus. When we trust in him, there's life after death. Death, the one who follows Jesus, has every spiritual blessing. But we still don't know what tomorrow brings. Do you see Ecclesiastes here? Life is still a mist that comes and goes. And so don't be arrogant to think that you can control tomorrow. But say, only if the Lord wills. And in chapter 5, we're encouraged to remember God's judgment. So either glance your eyes across the page or flip over to chapter 5. But from verse 7, it says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
How do we live in a world of time and chance? Well, here, the Lord's return is of great comfort. The righteous and the wicked, it doesn't matter how you live, love and hate are both before them. Well, the Lord will return and put it right. The good and the evil both die, there's no justice. Well, the Lord will return and put it right. That is, the return of Jesus means we don't need to despair. But rather, we can entrust things to him. And isn't it striking here that we're to consider the steadfastness of Job? Job was an upright man. But one day, disaster struck and he lost his fortune and his family just like that. The atheist cries, there's no God. From the bottom-up perspective, we ask why. But Job was steadfast in his suffering. It wasn't time and chance. It was under the hand of God, and he trusted. And by the end of the book of Job, God restored his wealth and gave him family more than he had before. And so the top-down perspective, God had his purposes and showed his compassion and mercy. Consider Jesus. He was an upright man. He suffered more than Job did. He did no wrong and was unjustly killed. Yet he trusted. The bottom-up perspective, we ask why. But the top-down perspective, God had his purposes to save humanity. And so life is not a game of snakes and ladders. We just don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what God has planned. But in all those things, we can consider Job. And we can consider Jesus, knowing that we can entrust all things to him and that he will return and put everything right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the example of Job and the example of Jesus. Thank you that we do have meaning in life, but even though we don't know what tomorrow brings, we can entrust all things to you, knowing your plans and purposes will prevail. So help us keep living, living in this world where it feels like snakes and ladders, knowing that you're in control of all things. We pray all this in Christ's name.